Father in heaven, we thank you for your love and grace and kindness and the ways you've led us in the last year. Lord, I pray that by your grace, this will be a banner year for us. Help us, Lord, as we open your word again. In Jesus' name, amen. So we got some banners up here. They're pretty neat, aren't they? Pastor Bernie and Pastor Patty working together, put those together. And, and we're starting a, a new series that will run the first two months this year called Banner Year, A Call to Action. And we, again, have Pastor Bernie to thank for this. He came up with the idea for this series. And uh, it's always exciting when someone, come out, someone else comes up with the theme because then I, I do things I would have never thought to do on my own. So I'm pretty excited about this. You may want to also... Uh, make a point in the week to listen to Pastor Bernie's sermon online if you're not actually here for it, because we're preaching the same texts, and uh, you might be interested to hear how we would handle uh, the same texts in different ways. It's good for our ears to hear a lot of different voices. It gives us a, a fuller concept of God's Word. But So we've got some banners here today, and, and these, are, these are the tribes of Israel. How many tribes of Israel are there? <laughs> yeah, you want to say 12, don't you? But count them, right? Let's see. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. What in the world? How does this happen? And then tell me this. Was Joseph a son of Jacob? Well, where's Joseph's name? Do you see it anywhere up there? You know, sometimes we assume things and we think we know things and it, it really helps us when we actually go back and read the text itself because there's a difference between the tribes and the sons of Jacob. So where did all these kids come from? Well, well, Jacob had a number of sons and later he was called Israel. So these were the children of Israel. It started with Leah. You can find this story in Genesis 29 and 30. Leah first had Reuben, and then Simeon, and then Levi, and then Judah, and it was at this point that Rachel started getting a little nervous. You know, Rachel was the other wife, Leah's sister, and she started getting a little nervous because she wasn't having any kids, so she came up with a really good idea. We'll see if you agree. She went to Jacob and said, you know, I've got this handmaiden. Why don't you also take her as a wife, and she can have children for me? Well, it seemed like a good idea at the time, I think. But, you know, I guess that kind of thing happened because it's the same thing with Hagar and Sarah, wasn't it? So I guess that wasn't all that unusual in those days. And that's, a, again, that's a wake-up call to us to not assume that the assumptions in Bible times are exactly the same as how our mind thinks. We have to challenge ourselves to understand the story. So, so Billa, then Rachel's servant, has Dan and Naphtali. Okay, well, uh, during this time, Leah quits having children. So she gets nervous and says, all right, I see how this game is played. So she goes to Jacob and says, I have a handmaiden as well. Her name is Zilpah. So why not a couple sons with Zilpah? So then we get Gad and Asher. And it is at this point then that Leah conceives again and gives birth to Issachar and Zebulun. It's very interesting if you read the story. When Leah is about to give gives birth to Issachar, she said, it is because the Lord is pleased that I gave my handmaid to my husband. 
Kind of interesting when you actually read the stories, isn't it? So Leah has Issachar and Zebulun, and then finally, Rachel becomes pregnant and gives birth to Joseph, and then later to Benjamin, but it is in giving birth to Benjamin that Rachel dies. So which names in this list line up and which ones don't? Well, Joseph isn't there, is he? How is it we end up with 13 if we subtract one? So which two names up here aren't actually literal children of Israel? Ephraim and Manasseh. Well, where in the world do Ephraim and Manasseh come from? Well, I'm glad you asked. Genesis 48, verse 5. Now, what's going on here is Joseph has been in Egypt, and he's been through his hard time. Now he's been promoted, and he's a leader in the land. And Jacob has now come down and joined him. And this is what Jacob says. Now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you here will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Jacob said, I have missed you so much that I'm going to count your two sons as mine, and they're going to be mine just like Reuben and Simeon. Then he goes on. This is interesting. Any children born to you after them will be yours. In the territory they inherit, they will be reckoned under the names of their brothers. Now, I don't know that we actually know if Joseph had any more children, but if he did, they were included under Ephraim and Manasseh. Manasseh. So, if we were to just kind of ask the question, who are the mothers of the children of Israel, the, the default answer would be what? It'd be Leah and Rachel, right? But we would be really selling it short, wouldn't we? And maybe if you were an A student, you would add uh, Billa and Zilpah. But who's the mother of Ephraim and Manasseh? So what do we got? We got the tribes. We've got Leah is the mother of Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. So there's six. And we got Rachel is Benjamin, but just Benjamin because there's no tribe of Joseph, right? And then we've got Billa, Dan, and Naphtali. Then we've got Zilpah, Gad, and Asher. But who in the world is the mother of Ephraim and Manasseh? Do you even know? Asenath a mother in Israel who was 100% Egyptian. Isn't that crazy? Genesis 41, verse 50. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, it is because God has made me forget all my trouble in all my father's household the second son he named Ephraim and said, it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Asenath, a great mother in Israel. It's an interesting point. There's 13 tribes. Six of those tribes had mothers who were just people of the land. Billa, Zilpah, Asenath. Ephraim and Manasseh, the whole tribe, started out half Egyptian. Maybe there is room in God's family for everybody. What do you think? 
But enough introduction, let's get to the heart of the message for today. And I want to start by talking about Abraham. Let's start with him and with something God said to him. For contained within God's word to Abraham is the whole point for today. Genesis chapter 17, verse 7. God says to Abraham, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Now, sometimes we hear those words and it it doesn't really register with us because in general, we've grown up in a monotheistic reality and culture. And so for us, it's either God or no God, right? So for God to say, I will be your God and you will be my people, is kind of like, well, I guess, yeah, obviously. But that was a polytheistic culture where there were lots of gods. And God was saying, listen to me, look at me, look just at me. I will be your God. Don't worry about any of the rest of these. How does the commandment read? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Polytheistic culture. I will be your God. Look at me. He goes on, verse 8. The whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. And then he repeats it. And I will be their God. So the summary statement. I will be your God. I will be with you. I will be their God. And I will be with them. But you know how it is, right? Time passes And the faithfulness of the fathers starts to fade. It fades in the generations to come, which is a truth that brings us to the key chapter for the day and the first crisis story that takes place in this chapter. This is Exodus 17, and there's there's actually two crisis stories in this chapter. Exodus 17, verse 1 The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? So the sons of Israel have now become the tribes of Israel, and the Lord is keeping his word to Abraham, but the people are not doing as well in trusting the Lord as Abraham did. Verse 4, then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. This is a a feeling that people in spiritual leadership have from time to time, just so you know. (laughs) Verse 5, the Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place 
Massah, and Meribah, remember those names, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Have you ever asked that question? Is the Lord among us or not? You see, it's normally quite easy to believe that the Lord is among us when things are going smoothly and and when we're being delivered, but can we still believe that the Lord is among us in the hour of trial? Is the banner that flies over your life a banner of settled confidence that the Lord is with us? Or is it as often a great big question mark as it is a great big exclamation point? What does the banner look like that flies over your life? But this was just the water crisis. And it was just a crisis in the midst of a number of crises that took place. We go back one chapter, Exodus 16, verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. So this is the story of when the quail come, and then the manna comes. So the Lord brings them to this crisis, and once again, they lose their faith. And once again, the Lord shows himself to them in the crisis. So before the thirst had come the the hunger, and despite the grumbling and faithlessness of the people, God had delivered But even this food crisis wasn't the first. There, a couple of chapters back, is another incident where the children of Israel find themselves trapped between the army of the Egyptians and the sea. Exodus 14, verse 10, as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, now this is sarcasm alert, one of the great sarcasm moments of all the Bible. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? Just so you know, you're not the first smart Alex to ever live. What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Oh, well, maybe rescued from slavery? But we forget, right? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Such a thankless and faithless statement, isn't it? Aren't you glad you never act like that towards God? Verse 13, Moses answered the people, 
Do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. So we see in these stories three legitimate, significant crises. And I'll bet most of us have never faced even one crisis this bad. You ever been out in the middle of the desert with your family with nothing to eat and no idea where you're going to get it? Or nothing to drink? Or when was the last time you were trapped between the Egyptian horde and the Red Sea? These are real problems. And we can hardly fault the children of Israel for despairing. But you know, it doesn't have to be that way. Because the Lord had promised Abraham that he would be Abraham's faithful God and that he would be faithful to him and faithful to his descendants. So when there was Pharaoh in the sea, the Lord said, I will fight for you. And in the food crisis, he says, I'll help you, and then you will know that I am your God. Yet even though the Lord had revealed himself again and again, when the water was gone, the people still asked, okay, is the Lord among us or not? Which brings us to the portion of Exodus 17 that I want to focus on today. Yet another crisis where the people need their God. Verse 8, the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. Now, there's a couple things I want you to realize here. First of all, God doesn't ask us to do the same thing in every situation, every time. The last time Israel had faced an army coming at them, God said, stand still and I will fight for you. This time when an army came at them, he said, okay, get yourselves organized and go out and fight. It's not always the same answer. We have to listen for God's leading every time. God's grace and deliverance in the past is a sign of his goodness, but the means of his deliverance is not necessarily going to be the same the next time. So don't fall into the routines that say, well, that's what they did. We better do the same thing because God may be doing a new work. And you need to be ready for that new work when it comes. So that's the first point. But the second is this. God said, okay, get yourselves organized, go out there and fight. And they're probably saying, with what? They don't have an army. They've not been organized as an army. Oh, sure, later on they'll have military training schools and, and traditions of valor like David and his mighty men. But at this point... It would be like God saying to us in this room, okay, a horde from Altamont Springs is attacking. Go out and meet them. Really? Yet God is sending them out to face their enemies. Verse 10, so Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses and Aaron and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, 
the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on his side, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Now we very often, when we come to this story, key on this piece of the helpers who help the man of God keep his arms in the air. And let me just say, this is a lovely point. And though I'm only noting it briefly, let me just say to you, those of us privileged to serve the Lord in various ways are most blessed when people come along and help us hold our hands up. That's a great point, but that's not the main point today. Instead, I want to key on what comes next. I want to key on what Moses does and says next. Exodus 17, verse 15. Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. Israel didn't win because Moses kept his arms in the air. Israel won because the Lord was their banner. And if he was holding up anything, it was the banner of faithfulness in the Lord. And when Moses and the people kept their faith and kept their eyes on the Lord, then they could not be defeated. No one could beat them. But how does one come to learn and believe that the Lord is their banner? Well, here's the thing with it. I can tell you that the Lord is your banner. And that can sound pretty good to you. And you can even buy into that. But is that the same thing as really knowing and believing in your heart? Let me ask you this. Is there any better teacher in our lives than experience? If God is going to reveal himself to you as deliverer, he probably needs to deliver you from something, right? Which means you got to be in a tough spot for it to happen, right? Could this perhaps grant some understanding to the crazy experiences Israel had? They needed to come to see God as deliverer, provider. But in order to understand that, they had to get in those spots. Israel needed to learn that the Lord was their banner and that their security did not lie in numbers or resources or strength. It was only when they looked to and trusted in the Lord that they could find deliverance. Yet despite the faithfulness of the Lord to Israel, still, it was so hard for the children of Israel to believe today and then keep believing tomorrow. Yes, he delivered them from the army at the Red Sea, but now we're out of food, and faith crumbles. And yes, he brought them food, but now we don't have any water, and faith crumbles. It is so hard sometimes. Is there a word for us in this? 
I believe there is, and it's, it's in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. So as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. Now what's very interesting here is the author of Hebrews is actually kind of quoting here. It's not an exact quote, it's more of a paraphrase, but he's quoting from Psalm 95, which if we read it in context, it reads like this, verse 6, Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. We sing a song like that, right? It's a beautiful song. And then it goes on. It says, Today, if only you would hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah. Remember I told you to remember these words? As you did that day at Massah in the wilderness where your ancestors tested me, they tried me though they had seen what I did. Now we know the context to that, don't we? This is a reference to that event in the wilderness with the water. They tested the Lord and said, is the Lord among us? Even though they already knew he'd delivered them from Egypt, he'd brought them through the Red Sea, he'd given them food when there couldn't be any food, yet still they tested him. Now, compare that back. This is the context of the Hebrews 3 passage, verse 7. So, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. This is reference to that time in the wilderness. During the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And in fact, that's what happened, isn't it? The people who saw God's deliverance from Egypt, yet could never fully grasp faith and accept him as their God, fell in the wilderness and never entered the land of rest. The Lord sought through trials and experiences to teach the people about himself, that he was their deliverer, that he was their provider, that he was the source of blessing, that he was their constant companion. But the generation that came from Egypt just couldn't believe that the Lord was their banner. That danger of failing to believe that God is with us, that he is our banner, that he is present, well, that's a danger for us too, isn't it? Verse 12, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God but encourage one another daily. How often should we encourage one another's faith? Daily. Encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. Not just believing today, but believing tomorrow and the day after and the day after. Holding firmly, 
knowing that the Lord has delivered, knowing that the Lord will deliver regardless of what the course looks like when we're in it. Verse 15, as has just been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Failure to believe. Failing to realize the Lord is our banner. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. So here's where we're going to wrap it up today. This is the first Sabbath of the new year. But what kind of a year is it going to be? What if we make this year a banner year? A year when we remember the great truth that the Lord is with us. And a year when we lift our banners and show the world what we believe by how we live. Jesus said, John chapter 12, verse 31, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Jesus is our banner that we lift up. Psalm 46.11 states, The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Is this something you believe? Is it true for you what Moses said in Exodus 17? The Lord is my banner. And about all those trials last year and, and the ones that we're likely going to face this year, what about them? Well, maybe it could be like this video says. So things haven't turned out as you hoped. Life took a turn, a bump, a darkened sky. And at times it may have seemed there was no hope. But here's the good news. Our God is the God of fresh starts. Our God is the God of new beginnings. Our God brings new mercies, new compassions, 
not just once a year, not just when things are bad, but every single morning. This season has been tough. And for many of us, things will never be the same. But we are here, breathing, maybe smiling, or crying, or shouting, or laughing. But we are here, feeling, maybe fighting, or cheering, or seeking, or grieving, but we are here living and we are not alone our God is here our God is with us and our God is the God of new creations is with us and he is our banner so let's make this a banner year let's pray Father in heaven help us to believe and help us to see your hand in the midst of the trials to realize that through these experiences we are learning about you. May we march through this year victoriously, carrying aloft the banner of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. <laughs>